Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast. We exist to become witnesses to God's new creation so that every man, woman, and child has a daily encounter with Jesus. We believe that as a family of servant missionaries, we are empowered to participate in God's story because of the good news that King Jesus is making all things new. In a contrast of sinners and the self-righteous, Jesus shows that only His forgiveness can reconcile all our brokenness so that we can humbly enter into God's kingdom. Okay, take your Bibles, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, we're in a a series called The Good News Kingdom, that there is a kingdom that has come in the person of Jesus, and this is good news. And I want to congratulate you and congratulate me. We've made it to chapter 9, all right? We're only 19 more chapters to go and 16 more years, but we are in Matthew chapter 9 together this morning. And as we turn there, we're now in the fifth story of Jesus after coming out of the Sermon on the Mount. One of the things as Christians that we need to understand is that Christianity is about word and deed. There's always this debate, is it more important to evangelize or more important to love people? You ever heard this discussion before? And what I want to say is that the Bible continually shows us that Jesus was powerful in word and in deed. And we just saw in chapters 5, 6, and 7 his powerful teaching, the life of the kingdom, the ethic of the kingdom, and this is the new way of living under the reign of Jesus. And yet Jesus didn't just come and teach, he came and demonstrated. He was powerful in his actions. He was powerful in his deeds. And just as we saw last week, in the, in, the, in the encountering of the demons and the pigs, we saw something new, something for the very first time in the Gospel of Matthew, and that was Jesus encountering the demonic, the powers of darkness. We're also going to see this morning some other firsts in the Gospel of Matthew. The first thing that we're going to see is that Jesus has authority, not only just over the powers of darkness, but he has powers over the forgiveness of sins. He has the authority and the right to forgive sins. And the second thing we're going to see this morning that is new in the Gospel of Matthew is that up to this point, everyone has been patting Jesus on the back, giving him high fives, celebrating him, you know, really excited about all the things he's doing until he makes this claim that your sins are forgiven. And then all of a sudden, the self-righteous jerks begin to have their antenna go up. Any of you like that? You hear something wrong and it goes wrong and you're just like, Zip. just a couple of you, okay? Well, here you are in the story, the scribes. The people for the first time who have watched CNN or Fox News and didn't like something, and now they're getting angry. And Jesus has words for these people. And so, I don't know if you remember last week as we looked at Matthew chapter, at the end of chapter 8 there, I said there was this repeated phrase, behold the demons, behold the pigs, behold the townspeople. Well, Matthew continues this cycle and he continues to use this Greek phrase, behold, and there's two more beholds in this story. Number one, behold the paralytic, behold the man who can't walk. And behold, or when I say behold, I feel like I'm preaching King James at you, right? Have any of you used the word behold this week? Okay. Look, 
Okay? Look at the paralytic. And look at the scribes. And the reason Jesus is asking us to look, I think Matthew is writing this, to actually make us contrast the scribes and the paralytic this morning. So let's look at Matthew chapter 9. Uh, just look at verses 1 and 2 and look a little bit about this paralytic together. It says in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus climbed into a boat and went back across the lake to his own town. I have on the next slide for you a picture of where Jesus was. Last week he was on the, on the dot there. He was on the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee. Okay. Now he took a boat back up to the northwest side to a town called Capernaum. In chapter 4, verse 13, this is where Jesus made his home base. Jesus' home base was in Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. He's just healed the pigs, and now he's back in his hometown as he got on the boat and crossed the lake yet again. Now, as we read this story, there's something in the Gospel of Mark uh, Mark has a similar account to this story. And just let me say this. Um, lots of people like to look at the gospel accounts and compare and contrast and then try to find all the discrepancies. Does that make sense? Like to look at them and say they can't add up and they're not reliable and they're not trustworthy. Um, but when we look at two different accounts, it's not that these two accounts disagree with each other. It's that two different people are recounting the same event with different purposes. Okay. If you and I watched a Washington, what do you guys call now? The Commanders, okay? If you and I watched the Commanders football game this year, and you're a, how many, any Washington fans out there? Raise your hand. You got to, none of you? Okay, there we go. See, you're all quiet. I'm a Giants fan. There's nothing to be proud about here either. But if I was watching that game, I would have a completely different take on it than you would, right? My son and I are watching the NBA Finals together right now, and he wants this team from Boston to win, and I want this team from Golden State to win. And we both look at the same play, and we both come with different conclusions. Are we both saying contradictory things? No, we're just looking at the same event from two different, purpose, two different ways. If you're really confused still, how many of you are married, and look at an event, and you both look at it from completely different perspectives, Right? This is what the gospel writers are doing. And so here now in the gospel of Mark, we are given some more information. When Jesus went back to the town of Capernaum, he is now back in his hometown, his house. And it says in Mark chapter 2, verse 2, that at his house, they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even the outside door, and he preached the word to them. The imagery that we get is when Jesus, after he healed, uh, the, sorry, cast out the demons into the pig and went back, his fame had begun to grow and they followed him all the way to Capernaum and he's sitting in his house and there's just this image of people everywhere in a first century house. And while Jesus is teaching, some men bring to him a paralytic. Okay, and the image we get is there's four people who are carrying like two poles with a sheet in between, and each man has a pole, and they carry this man who cannot walk to Jesus. Jesus has already healed people in chapter 4, verse 24, paralyzed people, and so he's, they've heard about his fame in, in Gadara with a demonic, and they've heard about his fame throughout Matthew chapter 8, and they feel like if they can get this person to Jesus, Jesus could heal him too. 
and now Mark, adds a second unique element to the story. Now, if I was Matthew, I don't know how would, why I would omit this, but he did. Anyone know how this man got in the house? Yeah, through a roof. Like, Matthew doesn't include this for us, but in Mark, the man was actually brought through the roof. Houses in first century Palestine or first century Israel were single-story structures with a flat roof that usually was accessible by an outside staircase. Now, most of these houses are only about 15 feet wide, okay? You ever been to Philly in a row, a row home? This is first century, not 13 stories, just one, but that wide. Why? Because that's probably how big of trees they could get to actually make a cross to actually make the roof. And so what they would do is these roofs would be actually very sturdy. Most of the time it would be big trees and they'd fill in the middle with like mud and brick and all these other things that are very secure. Most of the time people were actually doing work up there. They would actually sleep up there in the nights. And the word here in the Greek is that they were unroofing the roof. Okay, now, I, I can't quite tell you this is true, but it's, it's, the picture I get is like Jesus is in this house. There's just hundreds of people around the house just trying to listen to him talk. Meanwhile, upstairs, there's just like major construction going on. Right? There's like a jackhammer going through these trees, and Jesus is just carrying on. And everyone wants to hear him until finally they get through the beams, through the logs, and they bring him down to see Jesus. One of the things I took away from this, this morning's message is this. They had a desperate desire to get to Jesus because they knew Jesus was the only one who could help. They had a desperate desire to get to Jesus because they knew Jesus was the only one who could help. How many of you this week were so desperate that you ran to Jesus because he was the only one who could help you? And how many of us turn to our own ways thinking we can help ourselves? Probably a mixture of both, right? If we're honest with ourselves. There were things in our life where we were just like, I can't do it. I need Jesus. Then there's other things in our life like, I don't need Jesus, I can just go do it. And what I love about these men and this paralytic is that they knew that the only way he was going to actually experience healing was to actually see Jesus. And they went to whatever lengths it met, it needed, it demanded to see Jesus. And so unlike our last story last week where Jesus and the entire story of the demon being cast into the pigs into the lake, Jesus only spoke one word. You remember that in the entire story? The word was go. Unlike that story, Jesus now is actually going to talk quite a bit in this story. And he tells this paralytic, take courage, take heart, my son. I love this phrase, take heart. Jesus, even before he says you're healed, your sins are forgiven, before he does anything miraculous, he just wants this man to know to be encouraged. Jesus didn't use this man as a means to an end, just to advance his own fame, to get whatever he wanted from the crowd so more people would follow him. No, he genuinely had all these people around, and all of a sudden some man comes down through the roof, and Jesus looks at this man and says, be of good courage. Jesus 
when you come to him, is coming and he's thankful that you're coming. You are not burdening Jesus. You are not in any way inconveniencing him. In fact, when you come through the roof and you say, Jesus, the only thing I can do is come to you, he is saying to you, son and daughter, take heart. Be reassured that Jesus wants to be with you. He loves you. His, his healing of you, his strengthening of you, his giving you of his peace and his joy is a delight to him. And so Jesus says, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Scripture portrays you and me as individuals who've been created in the image of God to actually bring about God's worlds. We were accountable through Adam and Eve to obey our own, sorry, not to obey our own dictates. We were accountable because of Adam and Eve to obey God's rule, God's ways, God's laws. But as Romans 3, as I mentioned this morning in our prayer, all have sins. And you and I have fallen short of the glory of God. What I love about this idea of falling short of the glory of God, I don't know if you've heard this phrase before, but the word sin means to like miss the mark. And I don't know if any of you have seen Brave before, the best Disney princess of all time. Okay, all right. And she's really good at what? Hitting the mark, isn't she? Like, I love, well, it's kind of very rebellious, but when she just starts walking down and shooting all the arrows and the last one splits the arrow, right, and hits the middle, right? That's what sin is. It's to miss the mark. You, it's like God's mark is the bullseye. But the idea here is that you didn't just miss the bullseye. You couldn't even get enough strength to get to the bullseye. You fell short of that marker. You don't even have any, you don't even have enough strength to get to the actual marker. And the Bible says that this is you and I when it comes to the glory of God, that on our own we are so sinful and so broken and so unable that we can't even get to the blue or the yellow, let alone the red. We don't even have enough strength to make it all the way there. And so this leaves us guilty because James tells us, you may think you're pretty good, James tells us if you break one law, you're guilty of breaking all the law. That one sentence really sucks, doesn't it? Like, if you break one, you're guilty of what? Everything. Because to sin once is to be condemned. It's to be guilty. And such guilt, according to Jesus in Mark chapter 3, may be eternal. And according to this guilt that we have, now we will experience death. It says for the wages of sin, the the reward that you get for sinning is death. And death is separation. It's not just ceasing to to live. It's not just going into a ground. Death is actually separation. You and I, because of our guilt, because of our sin, will eternally be separated from God. And yet, there's forgiveness. There's a way to overcome this guilt, to overcome this death. There's a way to overcome your guilt. And this man, going up in the Jewish life, as we'll see from the scribes in a few moments, understood what forgiveness was. Jesus says to this man, you are forgiven. 
And church, I don't know when you hear this phrase, you are forgiven, what it means to you, but let me give you one thing to think through. When you're forgiven, it's not just that you were at a minus five and God brought you to a zero. What do I mean by that? It's not just that you were here and now God has taken away your sin and now he's just left you. See, in the Bible, we, we use this phrase forgiveness. We, use, we learned it last week in the kids' catechism called justification. That means you are declared righteous in the sight of God and you are treated as righteous. And catch that difference. It's not just that you're declared right, but you are treated right. I need a new example, but most, if you're my age and up, remember O.J. Simpson? Was he declared right in the sight of the law? Did anyone treat him as right? No, this is not what justification is. Justification is not just saying you're right, but you're not really right. No, it means you're right, and God treats you as right. That is unbelievable. That is what forgiveness is, is that the God of the universe, because of Jesus, has forgiven you all of your sins and not brought you to a minus five, to a zero, but to a plus five. That now he is for you, he is with you, and he loves you. And he tells this man, you are forgiven. Now, why can Jesus say that this man is forgiven? Do you see that little phrase in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 2? It says, seeing their what, church? Seeing their faith. Anyone not see it there? Someone have see that seeing his works? <laughs> Get rid of that Bible. Seeing their faith. This is what enacts the forgiveness for this paralytic man is his faith. We say all the time here at Redemption Church that you have faith in something. When Jesus asks you to put his faith in him, he's not asking you to do something brand new. He's asking you to transfer it out of what you've been trusting in into him. Look to him for everything that you're looking to money for and he will be, you'll be a Christian. You'll be saved. Stop looking to being a a mom or being a spouse or having a job. Now start looking to me for all of that and you will be saved. But then notice this. What I want to tell you this, church, is this, that the object of your faith is far more important than the strength of your faith. The object of your faith is way more important than the strength of your faith. What do I mean by that? Well, how much faith did this paralytic have? Did he really know who Jesus was? Did he have a full understanding of his kingship and the already not yet kingdom that Jesus is embarking on and going to walk out of the grave and a brand new, renewed creation is going to be here? Did he know all of that? He didn't know all of that. What did he know? He knew that this man was the only man who could help him. The object of your faith is way more important than the strength of your faith. In fact, you can have strong faith in a weak branch... And that is fatally inferior to a weak faith in a strong branch. Okay, so we have a tree climber here. How much would you verify this reality? You could have all the faith in the world that this little tiny branch is going to hold you, but it's going to break. 
Or you could be like me when you stand up on a ladder, you're a little bit scared of heights, just being six foot in the air, and you have weak faith that anything's going to keep you alive. But you have it in a very strong branch. What's going to save you? Weak faith in the right objects or a wicked strong faith in an inferior object? Why is that so important? Because I think so many times we beat ourselves up because we don't have enough faith. I wish I could be a stronger Christian. What is a stronger Christian? Like we have all these categories. It's so weird. When in reality, to be a Christian is to have your faith in Jesus. Do we want that faith to grow? Yes. But beating yourself up over it means that your faith is not in Jesus means your faith is back in you. And that's what's keeping you from actually becoming stronger. It is not the amount of faith you possess, but it is in whom your faith rests, church. And this is what we see in this paralytic, is a man who seemingly had very little understanding of Jesus, but knew this man was the man to put his trust in. Here's the paralytic. His faith makes him forgiven. But then in verse 3, we have another behold, look, contrast the scribes. Jesus, in a sense, declares this man to be forgiven. And, and for us, that might seem like, eh, that's kind of crazy. But why in the first century would Jesus, declaring this man's sins forgiven to be so revolutionary? Why would that be so crazy? If you were to have your sins forgiven in first century Jewish life, where did you have to go? Jesus' house or the temple? Where did you have to go to get your sins forgiven? The other thing that's so crazy about this is what Jesus is actually claiming for himself. Jesus is claiming to have the authority to forgive people's sins. And the scribes don't like this. The scribes consider themselves the official interpreters of the Torah, the law. The, the scribes were the people who went to seminary and knew Greek and Hebrew and studied the Bible their whole life. And they were the ones who studied all the laws and all the rabbis over the last hundreds of years and their interpretations of the law. They knew the law. And to them, to these people, Jesus was usurping God's role as the forgiver of sins and was by definition blaspheming. If someone came and said, your sins are forgiven, who wasn't Jesus, would they be absolutely correct? Yeah, they would be. Because the idea here is that what Jesus was actually claiming was to be God himself. And in order to be God and claim yourself to be God, you would actually have to be blaspheming. It's claiming to be or to do something that only God can be or do, which is namely, in this passage, forgive sins. What Jesus is claiming here is absolutely, essentially divine. And what I like about this passage is before Jesus even heals the man, I mean, is this man healed yet? If you follow the story, Jesus has declared this man, hey, I'm for you, I'm with you, take heart, your sins are forgiven. 
I'm the paralytic. I'm like, that's cool, but I'm still laying in a bed. And Jesus is like, hold on a second. Let me deal with these punks over here who think they're so smart. Okay? And he's telling them, he's seeing these um, scribes having evil thoughts, having evil desires. Now, did Jesus have some supernatural knowledge? Maybe. But, you know, if you're doing all this stuff and people over there whispering, you can probably see, hey, here's the scribes. Here are the people. They don't like this thing I have to say to them. And so Jesus, seeing the scribes, and the scribes rightly connecting the dots but missing the implications, who are just like the powers of darkness, by the way, they understand what Jesus is claiming, but they're refusing to submit. And what I mean by that is, please understand this distinction. The Jewish leaders knew what Jesus was claiming. The powers of darkness knew who Jesus was. But both of their refusals to submit to the authority of Jesus is what causes them to be cast out into darkness. And so Jesus asks them a profound question. Jesus says, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to get up and walk? So church, which question is easier to do, to say your sins are forgiven or to get up and walk? What is Jesus, why does Jesus ask this question? You can almost have the scribes over there like, hmm, <laughs> which is easier? You know, but what's the answer to the question? Say again. Easy to say your sins are forgiven, yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. But why does Jesus answer, say this question? Before I answer what Jesus, I think what Jesus is getting at, I want you to notice the next phrase. And, and unfortunately, in most English translations, the word is but. If you are in Matthew chapter 9 and um, verse 6, and says, well, let's just start in verse 5. Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? And so then it says, so I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. That, last, that whole verse 6 is what we call a purpose statement. What do I mean by that? We could actually say it this way. Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to get up and walk? In order that I may prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus is asking this question for them to get to the conclusion that he has authority to forgive sins. That's the point. And so when Jesus asks the question, who is the only person who could say get up and walk and has the power and authority to do that? God. And if he would say to that man, which he hasn't done yet, get up and walk, he has the power of who? God himself. So if he has the power of God himself to cause this man to get up and walk, he must also possess the authority and the power of God to do what? Forgive sins. This is the question that he is causing these scribes to actually deal with. And if you're a scribe, you're kind of like, nuts, I'm stuck. You know why? Because what does Jesus say? Get up and walk. In fact, there's three commands. He tells them, raise up. It's the, the same word like resurrection. Raise up, get up, take your bed, don't leave it here, and go home. It's, it's, it seems kind of mean, right? Get up, take your bed, and get out of here. That's, but that's how the language works. It's just very quick and very straightforward. 
Why? Because Jesus wants you to, Matthew wants you to understand that Jesus has authority to tell someone to just get up and walk. Which means he has the authority to declare that he is the true son of man. In church, this is the Jesus we can entrust ourselves to. He can declare over you forgiveness with the authority and the power of God because he himself is God. He is the God-man who has come. And so do not allow your self-righteousness to keep you from coming. One of the great theologians who passed away a few years ago of the 20th century said this, it is not so much our bad works that keep us out of heaven, but our damnable good works. And what he meant by that is what is keeping most people out of the kingdom of God is their own self-righteousness, their own good works that are damnable, that they are worthy to be damned. And this is what we see in the scribes, people who had good works, but because of their self-righteousness, refused to submit that they could be wrong. In church, you're wrong about a whole lot of stuff. I'm wrong about a whole lot of stuff. And if you want to hold on to that for a sense of security and a sense of authority and a sense of identity, it's going to actually keep you from the kingdom of God. The only thing that is true, the only thing that we wrap our arms around is Jesus. That is what keeps us. That is where we keep our eyes focused on. And I want us, as I said a few weeks ago, we all have wrong understandings of Jesus. Does that make sense? Like, none of us have a perfect picture of Jesus. But when the scriptures begin to contradict our pre-existing ideas of Jesus, we must submit to scripture. Does that make sense? Like, and we just hate to do that. And I want to encourage us that keep your eyes on Jesus. And as you keep your eyes on him, he's going to be far better and far greater and far more joyful than you've ever experienced. If you give up your self-righteousness. Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. To learn more about our kingdom ministry located in Chesapeake, Virginia, visit weareredemption.org.